Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joseph Gaines, and today I am joined by Dr. Sophie Bjork-James. Sophie is an assistant professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University, and she is also the author of The Divine Institution, White Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family, published by Rutgers University Press 2021. Dr. Sophie Bjork-James, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here and to talk about the book. Wonderful. Uh, so why don't we start out the interview and we'll have you tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am currently an anthropologist uh, teaching at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. I grew up in Washington State and kind of lived all over and then ended up joining, uh, starting my like graduate uh, research in uh, while pursuing a master's degree at the University of Toronto, where I started studying the online white nationalist movement and then moved on to getting a PhD at City University of New York in New York City, uh, where I embarked on research on white evangelicalism and the politics of the family uh, in evangelicalism and how it unites kind of faith and politics uh, in that community. Uh, And that formed the basis for the book. Okay. Yeah. Very, very fascinating. Uh, Very, uh, Hot button issues, obviously, uh, and uh, very, very interesting work. So why don't you uh, give us a little introduction to the book itself, The Divine Institution, White Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family. Um, so you you did field work for this book, and uh, um, uh, it was very good. I finished it just the other day. Uh, very fascinating. Um, why don't you give us a little introduction to the book itself and how that came to be? So I'm an ethnographer. So the research that I did for this book is ethnography. So what that means is uh, we, I went and spent time where evangelicals spend time. Uh, So I was, I started off really with this, with this, with this question of what unites white evangelical politics and faith so closely. So since about 19, since the early 1980s, white evangelicals have been the largest voting bloc in the United States. They represent around 25% of the voting electorate and tend to vote um, very much in alignment. So, you know, in 2016, over... I think it was like it was just over 80 percent of white evangelicals voted for uh, for Trump. Uh, And that was not I mean, it was a little bit higher than than usual, but it's typically of 75 percent or more of white evangelicals tend to vote uh, in this for the same candidates. And so I was really curious about what allows for that, what creates that political unity, right? Every day across the country, you know, people like every Sunday, people get up, um, they go to evangelical churches, you know, they pray together, they're in Bible study groups, um, they read their Bible, right? They listen to sermons. A lot of the times they listen to Christian music and Christian radio. And then they also, when they vote, tend to vote the same way. So there's clearly a alignment between like their faith and then their explicit political identity. And I was really curious what allowed for that to 
be so combined. I was also really interested in race. At the time that I started kind of conceptualizing this book, it was, you know, when Obama was president and there wasn't a lot of of literature research done on race and evangelicalism. So, uh, I mean, the, I'm trying to think how to, how to, how to kind of frame this, but you know, the, it gets the quotes attributed to Martin Luther King, that you know, the most segregated hour in America is an 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, right? Where the, broader patterns of residential racial segregation in the United States are typically reflected in either church, church, church going practices or, you know, religious affiliation um, and where people um, attend, um, where people worship or, you know, attend houses of worship. And so white evangelicals is very, it fits that pattern, right? Um, They tend to uh, mega churches tend to be located in suburban spaces. Um, they tend to be very much um, dominated um, by uh, or racially segregated. There's like black mega churches. There's Latin Latinx mega churches, and there's uh, majority white mega churches. But I was really curious about also how race fit into this pattern of voting. So in terms of like there's this interesting way that evangelicalism itself is it's a theological term on the one hand uh, which typically is described as people who are born again who believe in either the infallibility of god or in or sorry in, in the infallibility of the bible or in you know the bible is a serious um, source of influence in their lives and they are committed to evangelizing so that's a theological term but how most people use it, including within the event, like the actual evangelical community, uh, it's it's seen as much more of a political term. So, in most polls, they'll kind of se- um, separate out different religious affiliations, and they'll but they'll separate out white evangelical from white mainline Protestant and white Catholics, and then they'll often have like African American Christians, <laughs> right? So the interesting thing is that uh, there's actually huge theological overlap between white evangelicals and the vast majority of black Christians in the U.S. in terms of right the, the, that theological definition of evangelicalism, of being born again, of the importance of evangelizing and seeing the Bible as a significant influence in one's life. So theologically, there's huge overlap. But those two groups vote almost more differently than any other uh, group, uh, demographic group. Um, and so clearly there's a, something that happens with, between that relationship between race and theology that shapes very different kind of political worldviews, um, imaginaries, projects, et cetera. And so I was also really interested in that. So I'm not, my my background, I'm not a Christian. I wasn't raised Christian. It's very much, I'm very much an outsider to that world. Um, but I was trained as an ethnographer. And so I was starting to think about where might be the best, one of the, the best place to kind of explore these questions. And I decided on Colorado Springs. It's the headquarter. You know, at one time it, there was over a hundred evangelical organizations headquartered there, uh, or, or or located there. Uh, it's a very it's a place that 
has a lot of people from the South have moved there and the Southwest. Uh, so it's demographically interesting. And it's really like the culture, what, what I think the cultural center of evangelicalism. There's a lot of media that's produced there that's exported to evangelicals across the country and around the world. Uh, and it houses several important mega churches. So uh, in, yeah, in 2008, I spent a summer in Colorado Springs and then I moved back and spent the whole year of 2010 there. Um, so. Yeah. So you, you have a, a lot of experience then uh, in, in Colorado Springs. Um, I think maybe, uh, maybe this is my, just my perception, but uh, it seems like people think of uh, evangelicals or evangelicalism and think of the South and think of the Bible Belt. Uh, but, you know, that's obviously displaced a little bit. Could you maybe, uh, we, we can go into them further in, in just a little bit, but could you give us maybe just a, a few of those uh, media centers or, or, you know, big organizations that are kind of based in Colorado Springs? Yeah, the I mean, the big one is Focus on the Family, which, you know, at one point was getting so much mail that it had its own zip code from Christians writing in. I think the, you know, this was pre, um, you know, pre the dominance of electronic media. And so I think now they get um, most of their input through um, through email, and, but also phone calls. Um, but that's the most significant one. Um, but there's several others as well. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that, for that introduction to kind of the, the work that you did for the book uh, and how it came to be. So something that uh, is very important to uh, evangelicalism, as you found while you were working on this, um, is family values. Um, uh, even in the name of that organization, focus on the family. Um, so can you give us maybe a, um, just a, a little idea of what are those family values and how they played into uh, the, the work that you were doing. Yeah. And so for my, for my research, I, you know, I've, I've really just joined as many different evangelical like um, groups as I could. I attended a lot of um, many church services. I listened to a lot of Christian radio, you know, I attended a lot of Bible study groups and I was always, uh, as explicit as I could be that like I was there as a researcher and, you know, not a Christian. Um, but what I, you know, in terms of ethics, like wanting to be clear with people like that, you know, why I was there. Um, but what I, what I found is that, you know, most there's kind of this typical pattern of sermons, right? The, so there's a, within evangelicalism, there's Currently, there's, I mean, there's a debate about whether women can be preachers, but typically the vast majority of, evang of evangelicalism uh, is prioritizes what they call male headship. So men have to be the head of the household. They're the head of the church. And so if you look at most, especially like non-denominational or even Southern Baptist or especially Southern Baptist churches, right, the typically what you'll find is like, especially for a large church, they'll have a, like maybe more than a dozen ministers or pastors, but, and typically one or two of them will be women, but they'll be like the women's pastor or the women's minister, you know, or the children's minister. Uh, but when it comes to actually going out on the main, the main pulpit on Sunday morning, it's 
I only ever saw men preaching. And, you know, the leadership of the church is explicitly male. There's a, the male headship is really the cornerstone of evangelicalism, a cornerstone of evangelicalism. So in, uh, in this, uh, in this view of male headship, uh, and, and how that, what does that actually look like? Um, so in the churches, it seems like that has a lot to do with men leading the religious services and, and things like that in, in many situations, if not all of them. Um, but what about um, in, in the home? How does that uh, translate in evangelical culture? The expectation within dominant evangelical culture is that one's kind of goal in life is to get married and have children. And that marriage has to be heterosexual. And that is a line that they have drawn that, you know, across like 16 months of research in this culture, I saw so many people like ostracized from their communities if they cross that line, whether because they they came out as gay, lesbian or trans, or because they came out in support of gay, lesbian, trans people, including their own children. So it was a very clear line in the sand that to be uh, one is expected, like the goal is to get married and to re- have children and have a family, have a family. And the family is defined as a heterosexual marriage with children. Um, but I also came to see a clear relationship between the, you know, it, the focus on patriarchy in the, in the church kind of structure and the worldview of the church uh, and the importance of patriarchy in the family as one of the big drivers of their opposition to same-sex marriage and to sexual diversity um, and trans issues in general. Because if you have two men or two women, then there's not the same kind of left there, there's not there. I mean, there can be for sure, but there's, it doesn't fit into the same kind of naturalized hierarchy that is imagined within evangelical culture. And like, they see that they would never say hierarchy. They would say, relationships of authority and submission, which are divine. They see them as divine because they see, I mean, to be evangelical is to submit to God and to decide and to, you know, try to uh, surrender all of one's own kind of desires for what is seen as godly, right? What God, what God wants for, for, for you. And so that requires you to learn to submit. And so, what I came to see across all of my research is that pastors almost always use the marital relationship as a representative of learning to submit to God. Uh, and they'll, they'll use that and they'll also use the parent-child relationship as one of authority and submission. And so, you know, we could call that hierarchy, but for them, it's this, it's a, what they would call a biblical worldview that, you know, there is, it's, it's very anti-egalitarian, right? That like equality is antithetical to this worldview. Um, and I think it, what it also shows is like, there's a very clear relationship to this kind of theological understanding of life, right? Where one's goal is not necessarily to be in equality, right? Like that equality is not seen as necessarily a moral good, because it's not teach, there's no kind of like a greater authority that's guiding, that's guiding you, right? That the, the goal is not then equality or, you know, 
diversity, right? The goal is achieving this certain hierarchy. And they would, you know, they would say they're against, you know, abuse and like they don't want people to abuse their power. And they, you know, there's a lot of, I went to a lot of like marriage counseling, marriage, not marriage, um, workshops where they, you know, talk about the importance for men that you have to lead, but you have to also love your wife and like support her. And like, you know, it's a, you're like loving, you're, you're being a loving authority, just like Christ is in, you know, um, that just, just as Christ is. And so they're against abuse, but they're very much for this hierarchical relationship, uh, that came to kind of stand in for so many different ways of seeing, seeing the world. Um, but I think also is kind of the found is the foundation of, um, their, of the culture war. What, what, what has come to be known as the culture wars, right. It, which is kind of, um, debates and fights about, um, equality. Right. So those, uh, that, uh, specifically heterosexual, um, uh, kind of narrowly defined view of the family is, is symbolic for a lot. And it's obviously, um, uh, uh, a big facet of actual evangelical uh, living. Um, and so heterosexuality is an important part of that. Uh, something that I thought was interesting was one of the interviewees that you spoke to um, even more narrowly defined uh, who should be in that family. Specifically, uh, they were saying that this becomes an issue if um, older generations are living with that maybe core family, what they would define as a core family unit of a mother and a father and, and ideally children in this case. Uh, but they kind of framed it as problematic if if the parents, grandparents are still around. Um, I, I thought that was, that was a fascinating uh, kind of take on maybe even uh, more narrowly defining that nuclear unit Right. That was, it was, that was a fascinating interview because yeah, he was a Latino counselor who, you know, was kind of criticized. He, he, you know, he brought up, you know, how, Oh, you know, some people say like Latino culture, like, you know, is that is so, you know, family, you know, fam supportive of families and so pro family, but really like they under kind of, under they kind of embraced the wrong family and then went on to, yeah, say like basically the nuclear family is the real family versus the extended family, which is more associated with Catholicism is not the, you know, it's the, not the real, like it doesn't support individual identity in, in like a, a positive enough way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of working off of those definitions and those understandings of the family, um, you know, this, this works, um, uh, white evangelicalism kind of separates itself, uh, from maybe other cultures, um, potentially ethnically, they, they separate themselves. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about, um, kind of how this relates to the segregated church, um, as you talked about in your book? Yeah. And I think this is a really tricky, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing to talk about because on the one hand, like, and this is especially for the people that I got to know in Colorado Springs, they were very committed to opposing racism, which they defined as only individual prejudice. 
right? And so they had a very specific understanding that racism was kind of, it was a moral problem where someone could have racist ideas in their heart that was bad. And like that would, you know, and they were very much against that. Um, But they also couldn't understand racism as a, a structural facet of society, right? That, um, shapes their lives intrinsically. Right. Um, and so the, I mean, part of, so we, and I think what they would also do is kind of see the kind of racially um, segregated world that we live in today as just kind of natural, like, well, people want to live with people that like look like them or act like them. And so, you know, they kind of naturalize our present world, right. Uh, In terms of the United States. So, I mean, the United States is almost as segregated today as it was. I mean, if not, it might be as segregated today as it was um, when segregation was actually uh, the law of the land. Right. And that's not um, that's not by accident and it's not by people just choose. It's not was it's not been a choice. It's been a choice for typically for white people to live amongst other white people and exclude all other racial groups. Um, and so, I mean, what you have with evangelicalism. So evangelicalism begins to increase in popularity in the 1970s. It's at that in the 70s, it's not affiliated with any political party. You have evangelicals of all stripes, uh, right? Like the Jesus movement was really big um, in at that time when, which was affiliated with kind of more of a hippie culture. And so there was different it wasn't as it wasn't as political. It wasn't associated with a particular party in the same way um, as today. But when it when it really started to gain in prominence, it was guided by uh, what's called um, the church growth movement, and that movement uh, basically changed evangelizing on its head, saying we don't just need to go and evangelize to people in other countries. We also have to evangelize within our own country and our own culture. Uh, but they also embrace this principle that to increase evangelizing, the success of evangelizing, one should not, not ask people to uh, join churches with people that outside of their like community, right? And that the, like people will feel more comfortable joining a church if they are it's within their same class or caste or ethnic or racial group. Right. And so what it does is like if you think of the 1970s, right, where the United States has just gone through uh, this, you know, really, really violent civil rights movement. And well, a violent time. Right. There's a very active civil rights movement and a very violent resistance to that. It was just starting to make gains in terms of desegregating schools. And then you have this religious movement that emerges saying, let's just kind of build new religious cultures that match the segregation of the society. Uh, And so you end up seeing the rise in um, evangelical churches, many times mega churches that emerge in suburbs. And the suburbs are by design white. I mean, that's the, there's a whole history in terms of the suburbanization in the United States where, um, you know, most suburbs um, had exclusionary um, covenants that were only only allowed white people to live in them. Um, and so the kind of post-World War II ex- explosion of suburbs 
was really the this creation of a new form of whiteness. So that is the kind of recruiting grounds for the contemporary evangelical movement, which starts in the 1970s. And then around the um, Ronald Reagan <clears throat> election in 1980 becomes very much paired with republicanism. And interestingly, the formation of the first national religious right movement uh, emerges from uh, efforts to desegregate Christian schools. So in, you know, a part of the kind of after effects of the civil rights movement um, under President Carter in the mid 1970s, the IRS started going after these, they're called segregation academies, these private Christian schools that formed all over the South in response to Brown v. Board of Education and the desegregation of the public schools where white Christians would pull their children from public schools and put them into these private Christian academies um, because of racial reasons. And so when Carter's, um, Carter's administration starts going after these schools and saying, you know, you have to prove that you're actually desegregated, that anybody can come to your school, um, otherwise you're going to lose your tax-exempt status, right? It was an, really an attempt to kind of end some of the kind of continuation of segregation that happened after Brown v. Board of Education. And that really lit a fire amongst white evangelicals in the South. Um, so they created um, a bunch of organizations that did um, federal lobbying and out of, and then those organizations ended up becoming the base for the moral majority. So like the very, the leaders of these uh, private Christian school organizations, like the ones defending them were actually (laughs) ended up working for the moral majority. So the moral majority forms as the first national religious right organization. And for over a decade is, the most significant one, right? It's Jerry Falwell had founded it. Falwell's Liberty University, like, has re- remained, you know, central to this day as a white evangelical institution. And, uh, but the foundation of that is defending segregated schools from desegregation. But there's a there's also a through line of denying racism. So you know those battles, they didn't say we want to support white only schools. (laughs) They didn't say we want to support segregated schools. They said we want to defend conservative Christian values. Right. Um, And so I think that there's this way that racial segregation has led to a kind of like dismissal of the very conditions that have created these segregated spaces that we find ourselves in. And that's really what I found in Colorado is that people wanted to dismiss, you know, the, the white evangelicals that I got to know really wanted to see themselves as not racist. And I think a lot of them, especially at that time, really wanted to see more racial diversity in their churches. Right. But they also could not embrace the idea that structural racism exists and shapes our lives in really dramatic ways. And that I think creates some created barriers to developing a kind of broader, like more multiracial congregations. Right. Yeah. So that, um, that focus on the individual, um, I believe maybe you, you referred to it as relationalism in, in the book, but uh, it, it focuses on the 
fix to uh, these issues that uh, maybe non-evangelicals would call structural racism. They, they would maybe recast it in terms of uh, personal issues. It, it's kind of divided down to the individual level and it, it has, they, uh, evangelicals might say that it has to be taken care of at that level at the individual. And yeah, so that's, that's definitely fascinating how all of those spheres um, kind of interact uh, in, in that culture. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, James Dobson. So uh, we mentioned focus on the family. And so he kind of plays uh, a big role in this. Can you um, introduce Dobson to us and maybe uh, explain a little bit about how he, he plays into evangelical culture? Yeah. So James Dobson is a <clears throat> psychologist and um, found, you know, he, in the 1970s, he wrote the book, Dare to Discipline, a kind of um, attempt to challenge what he saw as the permissive parenting culture of the day. Um, you know, so at the time, Dr. Spock was really influential as kind of this, uh, you know, giving parenting advice that was about, you know, more like kind of like emotional support and nurturing. Um, and Dobson really saw, I mean, he, and he describes, uh, his own journey as, I mean, he was a devout Christian who saw, you know, kind of was looking around this 1960s culture, um, and seeing, you know, anti-authoritarianism everywhere in terms of like he, and he referred like, and he kind of saw that both in, um, the like sex, drugs, and rock and roll hippie hippie movement in the anti Vietnam War protests and uh, and also in the civil rights movement or in like the black black pride movement um, and so he like located the foundation of all of that in um, what he called permissive parenting and so really wrote this book saying dare to Dis- uh, called dare to discipline articulating this conservative Christian view that, you know, parenting, teaching kids to respect the authority of their parents um, was the foundation to a good society. Right. And so it, and it's interesting because the book is not explicitly Christian in a way that his later writings become, but it was really an attempt to get all parents to kind of embrace more of an authoritarian um, parenting model, you know, which included, um, corporal punishment, you know, like that it's really very explicitly, he lays out, like, you have to spank your child to teach them to discipline, um, to listen to you. And you have to, you know, not, don't do it in anger, but do it until it definitely hurts. <laughs> um, like very explicitly. And so it is not a stretch to say like, you know, generations of, you know, evangelical children have been raised on this parenting advice. Um, but then he goes on to found um, Focus on the Family, which is, um, starts in, is founded in Southern California and then moves to Colorado Springs and, you know, becomes, I mean, you know, there's very incredibly influential, like inter- internationally uh, in terms of producing Christian content about the family and really reinforcing this idea that, you know, of, you know, male headship is important that, you know, um, this, 
yeah, gender is like a natural, there's like that there's two genders that, you know, naturally define, define us. And, you know, they each have very different values that are both important. They're called, it's called like complementarity, right. Where like men and women are very, you know, we're both important, but have different, um, are inherently different. Um, but so, yeah, he, he's incredibly influential in kind of forming, uh, kind of foundation of what it means to what, how, like the ideas about the family and evangelicalism are united. And then he also, you know, founded the focus on the family action, which is a like political lobbying arm of focus on the family, which was more like a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, and so really pairing, pairing those two things. I mean, I think a center of that has also been opposing LGBTQ rights. So they were really at the, I mean, they created, uh, they had like chapters in all 50 states. Uh, You know, they really worked to oppose every possible extension of civil rights for sexual minorities for decades. Um, And interestingly, they also used to run this like three-day conference on giving a message that uh, homosexuality can be cured. And in that, that conference, like James Hobson would like talk about it as the heart of their political movement, <laughs> because what he would say with, and what that means is like, they oppose LGBTQ rights because they see that as challenging kind of like the Christian worldview and the foundation of a good Christian society. Um, but that they didn't want to just, they didn't want people when they were like, um, they would, they would describe them as people with unwanted same sex attraction to suffer. And so they were trying to create this, like what psychological tools to help people overcome their same sex attractions. And as a way to kind of justify the discrimination that they those organizations perpetuated was to say, we're not discriminating. You have a choice (laughs) to leave. So right now there's basic, you know, it turns out that, you know, even most of the people who said that they were, you know, had changed from homosexual to heterosexual have come out and said, I actually was lying. Like, I don't actually believe that your orientation can change. Um, But they really stood by that for a very long time. Yeah, so that's, um, it's really interesting how, uh, you know, Dobson, you said was a psychologist, uh, they're kind of create this therapeutic intervention for homosexuality uh, that that they believe will uh, cure people of, of what they would describe as unwanted attraction. Um, but then he's also such a force in the political sphere as well, kind of going from the personal and the and the domestic in the case of families and parenting um, into making that uh, that move political as well. Um, so speaking about same-sex attraction, uh, you spoke to many evangelicals or maybe even some that would that would consider themselves uh, no longer evangelical um, who experienced uh, what they called unwanted same-sex attraction. Uh, can you maybe tell us about some of uh, how the, maybe the conversion experience um, that people uh, described in evangelicalism around same-sex attraction and then maybe even about um, some of those political conversions even? 
Yeah, so in I, I got to know many people who identified as ex-gay during my research, uh, and some who identified as ex-ex-gay. So people who had tried to become ex-gay and then ended up coming out as, like, you know, homosexual, lesbian, gay, etc. Um, and, you know, I really saw it as most of, you know, the to be evangelical is really to be heterosexual for, and that's how many people believe it. There's people who are trying to challenge that. Uh, but the vast kind of the common, the most dominant understanding is that you cannot be gay and be a Christian within that worldview. Uh, so again, there's a whole group, there's whole groups of people that are working to counter this and, I think this is one of the reasons why so many younger people are leaving evangelicalism. I mean, it's been a crisis. They, the, you know, religious right sees this as like an enormous crisis and has for 20 years that uh, younger people are leaving the faith. But I think part of it is because of this idea where you can't be, you have to be heterosexual to be an evangelical. And so a lot of the, people who I met who were ex-gay really saw that as in, you know, it wasn't just that to come out was to potentially lose family or to have, you know, potentially be rejected from your friends or even your community, but also from God. And so for people who, you know, like a relationship with God is the foundation of their life. That is, that's a lot of rejection to face. And so having giving this kind of option of if you know well you can at least like like not practice your you know not like practice your sexual attraction right you can that i think for a lot of people it was really appealing because they felt then like they could still maintain their relationship with god right uh and but I, i and so a lot of people who and have tried that and realized it doesn't work, right? Uh, end up, um, yeah, coming at, you know, I feel like there's different options. They can stay with an evangelicalism and fight, and some do. They can become, find a different affirming, find an affirming church that, uh, you know, says, like, affirms them as who, who they are, um, or they leave the church entirely. And I think, yeah, I met people who have done you've done all of those things, but I think what it really does, my experience with interviewing people, especially honestly, the parents of kids who've come out just showed so much how, you know, like I interviewed this, uh, this mom who's, you know, they had three, they had three kids, two of them came out as gay. (laughs) They were incredibly immersed in their church. And, you know, one time she was, she shared a Facebook message of a, of their kids, same sex wedding. And the, like next week, the elders of their church called them and were like, you have to come in and meet with us. And they were like, you have to either quit sharing those messages publicly or leave the church. Right. And like, so again, this like line in the sand around heterosexuality is, I mean, it's really sacred to them. They would not say that. This is my interpret, my, my language, but right. It was, I mean, people were asked to leave just, you know, like reject their family, reject their children, reject their parents, you know, over, over this line. And a lot of people do, 
because there's a lot at stake and, you know, uh, but the, so the, you know, the, the mom that I interviewed, you know, ended up leaving the church and, but like so many countless others, you know, she was heterosexual. She was married to a man who, and had been married, you know, they'd been married for decades. They, you know, in many ways, you know, were kind of the paragon of, white evangelicalism, you know, this long-term marriage, like very, you know, caring, caring people. And they got, they lost everything. They lost their, like their church community, like half their family won't talk to them. Right. Because, but they were like, we're going to, we love our children and we're going to like continue to love them despite them, you know, being, um, not being heterosexual. And, uh, but that was not an uncommon experience for people, even for, you know, heterosexual identified people who just wanted to support, you know, their friends, their loved ones, um, who are LGBTQ. Um, but I think another piece of this that I, of the conversions that I found is that, you know, I ended up, I ended up interviewing a lot of people who had converted to evangelicalism as adults. And I came to see it was, I think because, um, some people were kind of looking out for me and wanted me to convert. And so kept intervie- introducing me to people to interview who were like, you know, had become evangelical as an adult and then could tell me their beautiful test, their testimony about how much it changed their life for the better. And, you know, as me as a non-Christian, some of my, the people I interviewed were, I think, looking out for me and introducing me to other people who could um, hopefully end up converting me, but it ended up being incredibly useful because so many, so many people, I'm trying to think almost every one that I interviewed who converted as an adult talk, talked about um, converting to evangelicalism at this. And at the same time, I called them like sexual and political conversions, having them all simultaneous. Right. And so, you know, people would be like, oh, I was, you know, sleeping with my boyfriend and then I converted and then we started sleeping in separate rooms, right? Until we got married. Like that was very common. Or, you know, like even like we, I was like such a, the people would recount and be like, you know, I was sleeping around a lot. I was having, sleeping around a lot. And so when I converted, you know, me and my friend, we moved our mattresses so they, to be in like the living room together so we could keep each other accountable, right? Like it was very much like, a very common theme in conversion narratives, but so was politics. And some people it was overnight, some people it, t- it was over time. But, you know, the one of the most uh, kind of symbolic of this was someone who was like, yeah, it was, you know, this kind of like, you know, free love, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of, kind of hippie. And then until my, you know, boss introduced me to his evangelical church. And then he was like, and here I am. Right. And he's this married father of five and like his conservative lobbyist. Right. And I was, and I, with him, I kept, and with, with each of the, my interviews, I would be like, okay, well, walk me through this. Like, how did you, you know, you became a Christian. Like, how did you, why did you change your your political beliefs right and like people wouldn't like couldn't even understand what the question was because they were like of course i then became a a, you know conservative republican like of course right like the the politics were so uh entwined with their faith uh and i think you know sexuality has a big part of that um 
but I also think it's just what's happened over time with um, evangelicalism. I mean, also with, you know, the trends in American politics in general are that we are now more, far more likely to like live in politically segregated places, right? If you look at kind of maps of even within cities, right, there's very clear differentiation about like the neighborhoods that vote more Republican or that vote more Democratic. And, um, and so I think, we just become more politically segregated as a society and for white evangelical churches have very much maintained like that, you know, are very much a part of that political segregation in that everyone that's like, it's not, and it's not everyone, but vast majority is uh, kind of comes to believe like embrace the same politics. Right. Yeah. I've I've definitely seen uh, some ire over, you know, whether someone's community is labeled as red or blue, uh, you know, if, if they don't themselves, uh, you know, think the, the community, the space as a whole should be this color or that color. So, um, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, now with, uh, uh, I think maybe this, this showed up a lot in the interviewees, uh, who talked about unwanted same-sex attraction. Uh, but it, it, you know, obviously the, male headship, fathers, fatherhood, um, you know, real fathers, symbolic fathers, uh, God as a father, this, this kind of shoots through the, um, the community's belief, uh, the, the movement's, you know, belief and, and kind of what, what is in their imaginary. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, the paternal politics, the, the paternal nature of, um, you know, kind of the belief there? that's really it that it is a through line right that you know like when i had one interviewee who was like you know i always thought it was interesting that the god you know god could call himself anything like the head honcho you know whatever but he chose to call himself the father and you know that's really important and you know i think that that's very much like it's so I, I I kept thinking about like um Jonathan Edwards like famous sermon like sinners of the hands of an angry god because you know one of the main pastors that I that I of a church that I, I would a- attend uh you know gave this sermon once about how like we're all we're all like <clears throat> in the hands of a really loving god right like he gave this like we're all you know like it was like the exact opposite right and so it's like this fascinating move that we've come from you know like god is wrathful and is gonna strike you down to if you're not good to god loves everyone like he's you know you're you're in his like you're 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 in his palms and like he's like the most loving perfect you know caring dad, which I think for a lot of people, that's a big contrast to their earthly fathers. (laughs) Right. And so I think in some ways it's, it offers a healing for a lot of people to really believe that, you know, there is this all, all all, like, you know, like basically just like unending love from, from God, from a father figure. Right. And, but it's so interesting because it's like, on the one hand, there's this, it, it felt like there was a contradiction to me because on the one hand they say, you know, like women and fe- female and male, they're opposite. They're really, they're, both are really important. We're all made in God's image, but then God is only, it's like, you know, the father, the son and the Holy spirit, but God is 100% male. <laughs> and also there was like, 
no very little theological talk about mothers right so you know catholicism has Mary, they they talk a lot about mary mary's incredibly important like across the catholic tradition but evangelicals i mean i don't remember ever hearing them talk about mary <laughs> like i'm sure they do sometimes but it's like not she's not very central right and so mothers are like very much revered and there's a lot of expectations that women don't work and you know like there's like such an expectation that women are you know um you know, mothers, uh, and they, you know, the heart of the home, right. The have to be like, you know, compassionate and kind and like kind of giving of themselves. But, uh, in terms of like the father is really just so central, right. As a, this figure of authority, right. And like, you could almost see these like linked authority figures of, and sometimes the pastor would even say that, right. They'd say like, you know, I am God, in my house to my children. Like I represent God to them. So I need to teach them to listen to my authority because that's how they'll learn to listen to God. Right. And so, and that's, that's such a stand in of like God. So it's like the father of children, the pastor is father and God is father. And like, they all kind of came together in that same person. Yeah. There's, there's like a, um, almost a nesting effect where, uh, and those, uh, hierarchical relationships between, like you were saying, children and, and parents, and the, but then even with the parents, the wife uh, would be um, complementary, uh, is, is I guess the the term that many evangelicals would use. But in terms of leadership, you know, the the father would be in charge there. Um, so, uh, really interesting. In the the later part of your book, you talk about. Uh, new generations of evangelicals and how the movement um, is maybe taking some shifts. Uh, there's there's obviously continuity in the movement, but uh, I, I was really interested and in, maybe you could discuss um, kind of some new trends and, and where you see uh, newer generations going in evangelicalism and uh, kind of what that looks like at, at this moment. Evangelicalism has been in a huge, experiencing a huge generational crisis for some time in that younger people are, have been leaving the faith um, pretty significantly. Increasingly, they're moving towards going back to actually mainline churches if they stay within Christianity uh, and just, you know, not fully embracing the religious right politics of their parents like, I think this has become even more pronounced in the past, you know, six years since Trump was elected and kind of, you know, reshaped, like shifted in many ways, the rhetoric that was kind of acceptable in the norm within evangelicalism. Um, but there has been, yeah, this generational shift happening for some time. And I think it's, an interesting question about, you know, I would, I, I interviewed some people who said, oh, well, everyone leaves and then they come back when they're older. And so it's a debate if that will happen or if there's going to be a reconfiguration of evangelicalism that's kind of outside of, not as entrenched in um, religious right politics. And yeah, I think only time will tell. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have been incredibly generous with your time, uh, Dr. Sophie Bjork-James, telling us about your book, The Divine Institution, White Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family. Uh, This has been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I do want to ask, before we get off, uh, what are you working on uh, at this point? I am in the middle of two new book projects. So one is looking at uh, race and young people's perspectives on abortion. It's such a um, you know heated topic today and stems from my research on white evangelicalism, but it's really looking at how pers- like racial diversity influences how, how young people understand reproductive politics. Um, and then my other project is looking at uh, how communities are countering white nationalism. And like what people can do to kind of, yeah, make their communities more immune to anti-democratic movements. Yeah, those sound uh, fascinating. Thank you so much for for sharing what you're working on. Uh, Thank you again, Dr. Sophie Bjork-James, for being on the New Books Network and talking to me today. Thanks so much. Thanks for the great questions.